reality. Only on WQHS Radio. So hello everyone, welcome one, welcome all. You guys are watching Changing Reality. So if this is your first time tuning in, a special welcome to you guys. What have you been doing with your lives before this? And don't worry, you're at the right place. So because Changing Reality is a show where we feature the stories and the journeys of phenomenal people from all walks of life who are essentially changing their own reality. And through this show, you'll get to hang out and, you know, and speak to with me um, amazing people from social entrepreneurs, change makers, industry leaders, pioneers of new things, uh, business owners, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, many who have spent some time here on the Penn campus as well. And through these inspiring stories, hopefully, we'll uncover some nuggets of wisdoms, some uh, wise words that we can use to apply in our own lives so that we can start charting our courses towards where we want to be as well. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning how these people came to be who they are, the journey that they took to not only change themselves and those around them, but how that has rippled into creating mass change in the lives of others that they may or may not know as well. And I feel that as we uncover these stories, as we start learning to these diverse experiences of the many people who've been here on Penn, the many successful people out there, we start seeing kind of like the similarities, the differences, the things that actually are, are unique to someone's journey. And hopefully by learning those things, we'd be able to figure out how that makes sense and how that fits in to what we want to accomplish in life. And to show you how important I feel the power of stories is, I actually uh, personally founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance uh, back in Malaysia, where I was from, which uh, today collaborates with not only 27, uh, 28 different countries, actually, but also ministries of education, large MNCs, global companies, to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover what they are passionate about, learn about themselves and the world around them through experiential learning, through hands-on experiences, and use those meaningful experiences that they have to start their own careers while they are still in school. That not only has an impact on themselves, but for those around them as well. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 youngsters from 970 different communities and have incubated a countless number of student-run projects, social enterprises, and much more run by students aged 8 to 25 years old themselves. And the basis for all of this, the reason we've been able to achieve all of this is the power of stories. It's because kind individuals from all across the world take their time to share their experiences, to share what they've gone through, to shorten the learning curves of these youngsters. And just like that, I hope that this show is that same platform for all of you listening and that these stories inspire you to go out there and change reality in your own way as well. So if that's the show, if you guys have any questions, if there's anything you want to talk about, any specific fields or experiences that you want to uncover, let us know in the chat below and we'll try to take as many and accommodate them into our episodes as possible. But today we speak to someone who is absolutely phenomenal. He was someone who did his bachelor's and his uh, like over here at Penn. And he's someone who uh, currently is extremely successful. Uh, he's the CFO, a partner as well at um, Rage Capital. So the amazing thing about them is uh, Rage Capital is a venture capitalist firm that specializes in food technology and uh, select pre-IPO opportunities. So they back exceptional founders who leverage cutting-edge technologies to change the way we eat, live, and interact with our planet. And in the age where many of us um, are not only passionate about food, but are passionate about sustainability and, uh, and being at Penn, many of us are passionate about venture capital as well. I think that this is someone who could definitely inspire us through not only his own journey, but the work that he does right now. So without further ado, let's welcome our amazing speaker, Brendan Chong, to our virtual stage. Hi, Brendan. Uh, hi, hi, Harsha. Thank you. Thank you for the, the warm and kind introduction. Thank you for being on the show. I hope today has been a good day for you and we didn't catch you at a bad time. <laughs> no, it's perfect. I think it's always a busy day, um, but all good. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to embarrass you and uncover a secret for you from about you to the audience just right off the block. Uh, but you're actually from Singapore, right? So as I mentioned, I'm from Malaysia. So it's just so nice to meet someone who's just like neighbors. So like um, 
I think we should start there for interview and for all of our audience, Singapore and Malaysia are neighboring countries. So of course, like I'm, I'm very excited and um, I can definitely see um, how food tech is must be very popular in the region uh, simply because I think Southeast Asia loves their food. So like, <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about like your journey, like even before Penn and all of that. How, how were you like as a kid? Were you the kind of person who in high school even knew where you were going, knew exactly what you wanted? Or were you as lost and confused as many of us are right now? <laughs> well, well, I grew up in Singapore, as you mentioned, Asha. And, and actually, I mean, you're absolutely right, right? We always had um, strong relationships between Singapore and Malaysia. And some of my closest friends are from Malaysia and still are there uh, in KL. Unfortunately, with COVID, a bit more difficult to pay them a visit. Uh, but otherwise, love uh, love Malaysian food, love Singaporean food, and, and people always talk about the overlap, right, in between. Um, but yeah, as a, as a kid, I grew up in Singapore. I would say, contrary to to maybe other people, uh, I think I I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. So I grew up in a family of lawyers. Um, my sisters are lawyers. My dad uh, is a lawyer, uh, and and me, everyone else in our I would say in our, uh, the family that we used to hang out with uh, were lawyers too. So that's one thing that I knew I did not want to go into. So I started out like that. Um, eventually along the way, I thought I was going to be a doctor. My parents really wanted me to go to medical school. Uh, I took biology. I went through, I took all those necessary steps I needed to go to medical school. But eventually uh, turned it down to end up at Penn. Um, where I studied political science uh, in the College of Arts and Sciences, as well as finance in Wharton. So eventually got there, but I would say uh, definitely not um, the path that I thought I was going to be on. Okay. How did you like make the decision about going to Penn specifically? I know you were a brilliant student uh, probably in your high school. I think you got uh, like straight A's in your GS, your GCEs, which is brilliant and absolutely and very scary for, for I'm sure many people around you uh, being such a good student. And as you said, you probably had many offers of places to go. Why choose Penn in a way? I mean, like, we're super grateful that you're here, but like what? <laughs> So I had a few friends who, who went to Penn and Wharton and had very good experiences. So I think that was very telling in itself. Um, they spoke about the great community at Penn. I mean, the great programs academically at Penn, both in the college and at Wharton. And I think that was part of um, the pro factor for me. Apart from that, um, I also played water polo growing up. I was a swimmer, which who then transitioned to water polo. I was playing for uh, the Singapore national team um, back in the day. And... I saw Penn also had a good water polo team. And that was also another reason why I joined and never looked back since. I had a great time uh, at Penn with the, my water polo teammates there who are some of my best friends um, till today. And I think for me, it was, it was a risk um, taking that opportunity, going to the US um, almost against, I would say my parents' wishes where they did want me to go to medical school, like I mentioned. Um, I had a couple of um, I would say a mentors who, who recommended that it was uh, indeed the right choice to make, especially since I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, be it uh, becoming a doctor or be it um, working in economics and the liberal arts education that the U.S. system is designed uh, to give to, to, these, to us as students uh, really was an, op uh, an opportunity for me to explore my interests further. And I, I would say no regrets at all. All right. Tell us a little bit about the, the whole those initial stages, moving again halfway across the world. I mean, I think it's exactly halfway across the world. We have a 12-hour time zone difference, so you can't literally yeah. get any further without coming the other way back around. Exactly, so, yeah. Moving halfway across the world, I know the weather is very different. Um, <laughs> food type is very different. The people are maybe are similar enough, like, like anywhere around the world, but also a little bit different. And at the same time, moving like... um. To this university that everyone's been talking about were, were you scared at all or were you just like this is my new adventure or are you like me and more terrified of these kind of things no i mean just it is a big change right you are moving like you said uh halfway across the world um you are 12 hours um difference in terms of time zones which you are actually experiencing uh, right now so so i can't imagine how difficult that is with full school days um and you are a 24-hour flight away from family. So you are forced out of your comfort zone, which is unnerving for anyone. Um, so what I found really helpful was the fact that I found a very good group of friends, both in the water polo team and, 
and outside of the team. And I think that's also part of the beauty of Penn, where there's so many people that you definitely can find that core group uh, of friends to hang out with, um, give that you have shared interests with. And it is a very multicultural place too. So it enables really that, that, um, that I would say it provides the best environment for a whole host of interesting experiences. So I'm very eager for you to make your way over to, to Penn's campus. Yeah, yep. I think right now it's recording. Things are still virtual for a while, but that should change in February. So we hope so. Yeah. Yep, yep. And and like when you when you were there, was it like always the plan? Okay, I'm gonna do bachelor of economics. I'm gonna I don't know dual degree with um like political science. Was that something you discovered taking through the various classes, trying out different things? Like were you set in stone, or were you crafting your path as you were going through your degree program? No, I was very much crafting my path as I was going through. So when I first got there, I thought I was going to do an economics degree in the College of Arts and Sciences, to be quite candid. Um, but as they, as you take the various classes, and I, I believe it's still the same, the core curriculum and, and whatnot, and these electives that you're able to audit and also take um, across different spheres, I realized that I was very interested in political science. And so I kind of skewed towards that. I was taking more classes in political science, and it was in my sophomore year where I then decided that hey, maybe economics in the college is not necessarily for me. I should take or I should pursue this uh, interest in political science further. And that's where I also added on um, a second degree. So that's where I added on um, doing finance at the Wharton School. All right. Amazing, amazing. And but you and I think that the first role that you had after that was actually investment management in private equity. So very, very pen thing to do. Very so like I definitely <laughs> see how, how you, you went from pen to here. But how did you actually end up in that first role of yours, like prior or during your time at Penn in a way? Um, and, and how did was that initial experience? Was it something that sold you on the field or was it something that turned out the way you expected or less so? Yeah. So in fact, after university, my first role was with the government. So I was with the government of Singapore in the Ministry of Trade and Industry, where um, at that point in time, we were running um, a $5 billion industry transformation program to future-proof Singapore's economy, right? So Singapore um, and the policymakers there are always very forward-thinking, uh, looking at what's coming next. So that was a program that was looking to implement technology and improve productivity across the entire economy. And we had carved out the, the economy into 23 different sectors. And I was looking at food manufacturing, food services, and FinTech. So it was with that base, I think, um, married with my own personal interest in investing uh, that was nurtured also at my time at Penn. I think that's how I transitioned into the role thereafter in private equity and, and venture capital. How was that, the, like, um, again, I think, you have had very different experiences number one um in in kind of like government eventually later also in kind of like the private sector when you were working kind of like on this government project which is extremely huge and um, we, we know singapore would be very effective with their um implementation of, of their projects and all of that was this um kind of like at, at some of your first experience after pen like right out of or like like almost right out of college to say how was it like bringing back all of these experiences that you had on a global scale and then having to digest and implement them in a way that um kind of like married what you knew about singapore and like what was going on in the country at that point of time because one of the things that i personally see is sometimes things that are happening here in my home country are a little bit different from the way it's presented or, or the where the industry is at right now in the us and i've learned that a little bit through my classes was that the same for you and was there kind of like a, a time where you had to figure out how to bridge the two or were you always just like okay listen this makes sense was it a copy paste from what you've been learning no definitely i think um there there are differences both culturally uh, and also in, in the government on the policy making side of things um i would say my experience at penn uh in philadelphia and yours hopefully too um would put you in very good stead to be able to bridge that right so a lot of the value that i thought was bringing was the fact that i was exposed uh, to what was going on um in the us and also having a bit of a greater understanding of alternative perspectives as opposed to the ones that we were grew, that we grew up with right ultimately um, in any sort of culture or country even in Singapore we grow up in a bit of a bubble uh, and that does foster groupthink um, to a certain degree so having someone come in who has maybe 
um, has appreciated different perspectives on a certain issue, allows more robust um, policy and decision making um, in the government's context. So that's where uh, I thought uh, it was very useful to be coming uh, back from the US and coming back from Penn. And I really think it is also something that uh, is useful moving forward, right? Aside from government work, also in, in any sort of investing work that you do, but being able to bridge those different perspectives. Okay, very, very cool. And um, after that, as you mentioned, you moved to um, becoming director of private equity and so forth. And you moved now to London, which I think is, again, a bit of a change. What what was kind of like your decision or your frame of mind after completing the project or, or moving to your next role? Were you just like, hmm, like throw a dart at a map and then say, okay, London, like that's the next place that I go or, or like, how to you go about it? No, so it was very, it was very, very fortuitous how it all worked out. Um, so like you mentioned, Singaporeans and Malaysians love food. I'm no different. I love food too. Um, and as I mentioned in, in the government, we were looking at technology adoption in the food services, food manufacturing sectors. So this job that I took up um, <clears throat> with the private equity group, um, we were investing in luxury hospitality and F&B projects. So we actually had um, uh, at that point in time acquired uh, the world's uh, largest or the world's the restaurant group in the, with the world's most Michelin stars. So that was an interesting opportunity to help them grow the business and also see on the operational side of things how we could contribute um, from a financial uh, point of view. So I was CFO at that point in time. And it was really married two of my passions, right? So both investing um, as well as uh, food. And beyond that, I mean, we eventually transitioned to our venture capital firm, so Rage Capital, where we found that there's a huge gap uh, in technologies needed in order to bridge the impending food supply gap. I think happy to speak about that a bit later, but ultimately from having seen it from a government's point of view, having seen it from the operational standpoint in a restaurant group, um, we were very, um, I would say we were, we knew that there's an impending food shortage and the only way to bridge that gap would be with technology, just because current supply methods um, are just not sustainable to be uh, grown um to in order to meet that impending demand amazing amazing and i'm gonna be honest when i think venture capital when i think technology and cutting edge like like things food is not it was not the first thing that came to mind <laughs> until i stumbled across some of the work and the things that you guys have done how did you really go about like finding like you mentioned it, it it's kind of like the the, the in the overlap between two things that you are very passionate about mm. venture and also like uh, like food and this industry and I, I have to ask this on behalf of all of our fellow malaysian and singaporeans how did you stumble across this industry in a way and and um find something that that actually had a career for you in many times i feel like when 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 a typical mindset would be like oh you know what i i, I the venture one looks like it's more of a profitable thing than my love for food so i'm just going to find something like the first thing that i could in venture but you somehow connected both so was that like again something intentionally that you had a mastermind plan to do or how did how did that actually happen no i said very very natural um given that we were looking at food before um in the government and also at, at the private equity group i think my advice and, and really how i've um how I've taken it as really to be open to any opportunities as they come, right? And in this case, it really married two passions, like you said, uh, investing and also the interest in food. And from an economic standpoint, or looking at the macroeconomic factors, um, it seemed like a no-brainer to me. Ultimately, with um, as I mentioned, with global uh, growing global population, uh, we're expected to hit 10 billion people in 2050. Um, and that would mean that we need 50% uh, more food between now and then, given that there's also not only growing global population, but increasing affluence in developing countries, right? People are going to switch from cheaper sources of protein to more expensive sources of protein. And that means that uh, there'll be a huge uh, pressure on current livestock farming, fishing, um, and agricultural methods. So I'm also an avid scuba diver, so I see it quite, um, I would say very concretely, when you go diving, you see the problems associated with overfishing. Uh, and that also led me to understand the huge environmental uh, issues that are arising from just an increasing demand for food. So taking all of that, what I thought was the solution um, was that we needed to invest in technologies. 
in order to save the environment, but in order to keep feeding the global population um, as we are able to today. And that's how we ended up investing in food technology. Uh, we invest a lot in the alternative protein space. So in plant-based foods, in cellular-based foods, in these fermentation-based platforms. And the idea of all of it is to provide um, an additional source of protein so that we won't have any impending food shortages. Because what we're already seeing is increasing prices for food, both at the retail level, but also at the restaurant groups, uh, which we were operating, uh, seeing how that affects everything downstream. So it's been a very, uh, very fortuitous journey. Um, I'm, I'm quite religious too, so I, I thank God for how it all happened. And that is also, I would say, the other thing that I'll tell students, right? Always be open to opportunities as they come, take risks, um, be patient with them. And ultimately, looking back, things always kind of fall into place. Okay, very cool. And you are an expert in this space. I think just a couple of months ago, you were invited to speak on a panel on, I think, alternative protein and food technology. So, like, definitely someone whose word we should take for this. When, as you, how did you go about, like, in your, like, in the journey of someone learning all of this, like, as a career? Because it's not something that I think we pick up a book and then we could just read about, like, how the current food industry is and the technology. It's not something that we avidly go and, like, like search for on a day-to-day -day basis, but it is a very, very important issue with real-world consequences, as you outlined. How did you kind of like come across this knowledge in your journey as someone who is kind of like going through your career and growing in your career? Yeah, so specifically on food, I suppose. Yeah, specifically on food. I just love the topic. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, of course. So I had quite an interesting journey. So having seen it from the government or policymaking perspective, so in Singapore, food security is a major issue. Uh, we are a small uh, nation. Uh, five and a half million people. Uh, we don't have our um, natural, we, we're a net importer of food. So it's a big national security issue. So in fact, they, they recently announced a 20 by 30, a 30 by 30 initiative where by 2030, they need 30% of the food supply um, to be produced um, on the island. And that requires technology, right? Singapore, as you know, does not have land to have the traditional farming or livestock uh, <clears throat> rearing. So having seen that from the government, uh, that was very interesting. Um, and then seeing that, as I mentioned, from the operator side of things, where uh, we were with the restaurant group and seeing how uh, ultimately it was very uh, difficult to obtain certain uh, cuts of meat, for example, or really at very high prices. So that led to um, us exploring what sort of technologies there are out there that could solve these problems. And some of these technologies are very interesting. So like I mentioned across the, those three main pillars of alternative proteins, right? So the plant-based foods you're already seeing in the market, uh, there was increasing consumer interest over the past five years. Uh, you're seeing on the milk side of things, the oat milk, uh, pea protein milk. Um, you're seeing on the meat side of things, right? The, these plant-based meat analogs with impossible foods beyond meat. So there's a lot of consumer interest. I think COVID has only uh, heightened investor and consumer interest in the area. People are talking about broken food supply chains during the lockdowns, um, rising prices. People are also talking about sustainability issues and also eating healthier as an individual. And all of that is contributing uh, to a bigger spotlight on food, which we think is something that we absolutely need. Yeah, no, very, very true. Um, going into kind of like, again, back to your journey, uh, private equity now in London and all of that. Um, Number one, I have to ask, like, um, as as you kind of like moved over and as you kind of like started in neuro, what were the first initial challenges that you saw um, that stops kind of like, I don't know, growing interest in this field? Or what are the major issues that you saw um, from like an investor's point of view, but also from like the point of view of someone who had already been in the field for a long period of time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there definitely is uh, technological risk, right? So in some of the deeper technologies that we're looking at and that we are actively investing in, um, it will take time for these things to come to market uh, at costs which will be uh, on par with existing uh, meat or, or dairy. So on the plant-based alternatives, those are already in the market. Um, those are things that uh, with scale, prices will hopefully be brought down to, um, to cost parity. What is coming next is something that consumers might not be fully aware of. And that's what truly excites us as well. So for example, we investing, we are investing in companies which can produce the egg protein. So exactly the same egg protein as what you find in chicken eggs, but without the chicken or the egg. So they use it through a process called precision fermentation. Um, and ultimately you have the exact same egg protein, which can then be used 
in baking and any other cooking uses. And now you are, you're completely reinventing the supply chain there, right? So similarly, we also invested in another company uh, called Remilk, um, who is doing the same precision fermentation, but for dairy protein. So now you can have um, that, uh, that in this case, uh, whey protein to be used for um, soft cheeses or eventually hard cheeses and without killing or without having to rear as many cows and the milk industry in itself is also a very unsustainable one, especially with the growing demand for it. So these are all examples of all new technologies that are coming to the forefront, which consumers might not be fully aware of yet, but their products will be coming to the market in the next two or three years. So it's very exciting for us because that truly is revolutionary for food. And even beyond that, I think to give you another example for those that are interested in biotechnology, right? There's even deeper technologies where they're using stem cells to recreate meat. So taking stem cells from the cow or the fish, growing them in bioreactors in the lab, and ultimately being able to produce that same piece of bluefin tuna uh, fillet uh, without mercury, without microplastics, without overfishing, damaging the environment. And you have the exact same consumer or customer experience. So all of these things are coming next. I think we really want to be the ones that are helping bring them to market, uh, ultimately to solve uh, the, the protein shortage problem, as we mentioned, and also uh, just allowing a greater um, a greater portion of the world to enjoy these products. Because right now there's dwindling natural supplies, it's expensive, but the idea really is to make this uh, something where everyone can enjoy. Okay, that is insane. It sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. So <laughs> very, no, I'm serious, I'm serious. It sounds very, very cool. Um, and one of the things that I think was under your like portfolio uh, as CFO was kind of like number one business development, but also strategic partnerships and like particularly strategic partnerships um, like in Asia since you were working in London. When when you look at your partners, when you look at like number one, how do you find the right partners? Do you think like for your organization at that time? Because again, this is also a very I wouldn't say risky, but it's a very nuanced business. If I if if I look at it, it's like there's many people who's trying things out. You want to make sure you've got the right partners. Food is very sensitive. So you also want to make sure that you're investing in the right places and making the right connections. How do you go about finding those partners that you think gel the best with your organization? Um, and at the same time, how do you foster those connections? Is this just something like, oh, they seem good. They seem like they have a great idea. That's like, this is going to be a great partnership. Was there more to it to kind of like make sure that both sides get like the most out of it? No, I would say it's a very iterative process. Um, of course, um, the PEN network helps. So many of our relationships and partners have also come through uh, the PEN Water network. Um, everyone is happy to speak uh, to someone else who, who went to the same school and we have that mutual connection there. So um, I'll say that helps. Uh, ultimately, um, being able to target the right partner is also a big portion of it. Right partner being, you need to know exactly what you're looking for in terms of uh, be it investment profile or um, ability or interest in, in that specific project. Uh, so that's a, a lot of what we were doing. And I think beyond that, really fostering and nurturing the relationship uh, comes with um, putting the time and effort into that, speaking to them, of course, on a regular basis, having very open and transparent discussions, uh, all skills that that um, Penn trains you well for, right? all these classes on be it negotiation, which I hope you'll be able to take, or um, just management right being able to manage these relationships uh, pre present uh, your business plans or your partnership plans uh, well i think these put you in good stead for for any sort of business development work in the future too okay very very interesting and i think after your, your time uh, in london you moved to new york so again with the very exciting new things and, that, and that's where you became part of rage capital also their cfo and partner there um venture capital with a food tech focus not something again like like something that i was it was the first time when i read about rage capital that i was like oh my god this is absolutely brilliant moving now kind of like fully into the vc side of things what are things that probably startups or people coming up with these brilliant ideas um like like I'm, like many people want to go out there say well many people are probably passionate about this what are like vcs like rage capital looking for in their ideas like what makes a good idea yeah, to us, um, game-changing ones, right? So, um, like I mentioned, uh, the company we invested in, Clara Foods, or now renamed as uh, the Every Company, they reinvent the supply chain for chicken eggs. Um, Remilk, like the other company I mentioned, 
uh, in our portfolio, they reinvent the supply chain for dairy proteins or, or milk. So we look for ideas that can reinvent uh, the supply chain and ultimately solve for all the various pain points that we're seeing today with traditional industries. So I think that's definitely a big criteria. In addition to that, of course, we look for strong founders. We look for strong founding teams um, who have that executional ability, but also that uh, ability to strategize and make their own um, uh, make their own uh, uh, business development opportunities. Right. So many of them have a track record for it, or over the past few years since we've met them uh, in their initial stages, have proven to be able to do that. Um, and many of them also have, um, I would say, a good group of advisors and mentors around them that enable them to pursue that even further. So those are some of the things that we look for. All right, very cool. And back to your story. So now moving fully into the venture space, what what do you think is different, like like the like in kind of like your experiences? What are the things that you had to learn differently now moving fully into the venture space compared to any of your experiences? Or was it something that on the first day of the job you're like, okay, everything's the same as what I've done. I know exactly what I'm doing. Or were there new things that you had to relearn, like now that you were like in a slightly different thing than what you were doing previously? Yeah, well, I think life is, is constant learning, right? So we're always, always learning. Um, and in this case, specifically in food tech venture capital, I think it was learning about the technologies, um, the underlying technologies with some of these companies. So we have a, a chief science officer who, who is an expert, I mean, PhD from, from Harvard, uh, MIT, that has spent his life um, looking at alternative proteins. And so that's a great resource for us too learning from him, understanding the technical aspects of all these technologies, because we need to make that decision whether uh, we would want to invest in, in the company. So I think that's a big part of it, the technical knowledge uh, and that subject matter, uh, well, the domain expertise. Uh, and beyond that, also understanding the entire landscape, right? How um, these companies fit together, what we want to see in our portfolio and the various pain points faced by uh, across the entire food supply chain. So that's also another big portion of learning that we had to do in the early days. Okay, very, very cool. What is one thing that you feel sets apart like this particular niche in venture capital from any other field out there? Like, like is it like, like or, or your favorite thing that you think is unique only to your role and like the work that you guys do? Is it like you guys are the only one who can be guaranteed free samples of like latest? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what do you think is like specifically like something that you've enjoyed about this. Yeah. No, well, the samples are, are a good thing, especially <laughs> when, they the taste, <laughs> when they taste good, right? So, of course, I mean, we get a lot of samples uh, from companies that are hoping to, to uh, get our investment, but not all of them might necessarily be, be the best. So, obviously, we don't invest in, in all these companies. So, apart from that, I would say the one thing that, that I really like is the fact that you feel... Um, you don't, do not have to compromise on um, on anything. And when I say anything, it means making a good investment, but also making an investment that is good for um, good for the world and good for the environment. So having that sort of no compromise opportunities uh, really is very meaningful, at least to myself, because you know that uh, when you make that decision to invest, uh, you're not harming uh, anyone else, and it really is for the betterment of uh, society. All right. Amazing. Again, uh, I think you're someone who's very wise, and you've you've you're obviously very well traveled, and you have again you mentioned scuba diving. You know what's going on, um, not just um, on the surface level of what's happening with the planet, with people. From all of these things that I don't know, from right now, I guess from a college students' point of view, there's probably so much of this world to learn, so many things that we we can't even begin imagine to learn to just know where to start in a way. What do you think has been some of the most meaningful experiences that have shaped you, um, either in work or, or something that you've seen outside that drives you in the work that you do right now? Mm -hmm. I'd say if I had to pinpoint uh, particular experiences um, in relation to work, I think one of them definitely is the fact that I was able to see or work in both the public and the private sectors. I think having that sort of um, uh, being on both sides of the spectrum uh, understanding how uh, different people look at it um, is very valuable. So to me, traveling and what you alluded to, right, being able to travel, uh, being able to have these sort of different experiences is uh, building up almost a collection of perspectives that you understand and that you can have. 
because having that that approach really allows you to make a more robust decision at the end of the day and that's what i'm a strong believer in always speaking to new people understanding what they're they're thinking about understanding how they think uh, and that really was uh, why i traveled so much especially when i was younger i always enjoyed speaking um, to new people in different countries where i I was visiting for the first time and out and really understanding what makes them tick. Um, so I think that's a, that is, is certainly uh, an experience that I found useful being straddling both the public and private sectors. And that has been helpful. I think another, um, another good experience has also been just speaking to, uh, to people in the older generation, right? Having these mentors and advisors who, um, who can, point you in the right direction or give you that valuable advice that you need in certain key junctures in your life. And that's why it's great to speak to panel alumni. That's why I'm always happy to, to speak on, on, uh, on programs such as this and, and really help happy to speak to anyone who, um, who needs advice. So I think those are the sort of experiences that, that shape you and that will continue to shape you. Um, and yeah, I suppose if you have any other questions, happy to jump deeper into those. Absolutely brilliant. The first point that you mentioned, especially, um, we, like like the sub point of the first point was on being able to get these experiences, being able to travel and all of that. Um, one of the things that that just looking at the many places that you've lived in, like alone, just like the places that you like like you stayed. How do you really like go go about kind of like moving to a new place, adapting to the culture there, and understanding the people there? Because again, working somewhere is very different from going on holiday. You've got to really have a, an insight of how this kind of like the business landscape is, the cultural landscape is, and to be able to do something effectively. And obviously, you've been extremely effective. So, what's kind of like your secret sauce in being able to immerse yourself in a new environment in a new space? I would say no necessarily um secret but just really being open to anything that comes along right being able to adapt uh, being able to be flexible um being open to opportunities as they come along i i have a mentality for myself i call it um bounded risk taking where uh within a certain within certain boundaries take those risks right especially when you're younger take those risks see how they pan out be patient with it um it things take time but ultimately, um, if you don't take those risks, if you follow the most well-trodden path, uh, you won't necessarily get any different results, right? So you can't look back and blame anyone if you are following um, certain steps, which will put you uh, in a fixed outcome. Um, and the beauty of life is um, there will be opportunities that come your way, especially for great students who, and especially for students who go to a great school uh, such as Penn and Wharton and try it i would say especially when you guys are younger uh, you you might not necessarily know exactly what you want to do in your life or at least in the near term so being open to any opportunities as they come about um, that really is a great mentality to have and a great outlook to life in general okay absolutely brilliant tell us a little bit like you mentioned kind of like the the climate like related aspects of the work that you do how it kind of like contributes back to solving some very pressing global issues is that a factor that you took into consideration when you started looking at your career the, the really huge impact that you would have on solving something that's very pivotal to so many people or were you like not so particular because one of the things that i see many people want to do is they want to do a job that is meaningful to them that gives back to the community and is aligned with their interests you hit the nail on the, the head like you like food like sorry you see i'm not over that um investment and at the same time also uh, in something that really is meaningful for all of us looking at kind of like crafting a career in a similar path what would your advice be because like, you could do venture capital anywhere else you could do you, know, you have an amazing array of skills but how do you actually craft it such a way that it does have that impact and it does make sustainable changes mm -hmm. yeah so if your your desire i suppose is, is having an impact i think you can really look at that from a variety of different ways right especially if someone's looking uh, in general to, to make the world a better place i don't think you are fixed to certain industries you can always within your own sphere within your own niche um, have that a positive impact on the world so i would say again is, is very much finding or exploring right so exploring trying different things to see what resonates with you as an individual uh, there's there's no necessarily one strict path in doing so i found it just because um, it's been quite a, 
a nice intersection in what I was already doing in food and also the skill set that I had from school uh, and at work. Um, but it can really come in, in various forms, right? I've seen some people contributing um, to the world in a very, very positive manner in, um, in other more technical roles, right? With engineering or um, I've also some people, some friends who remain in policymaking and are making the society a better place. So I think it isn't necessarily, um, there isn't necessarily a fixed career path or plan to achieve that. Um, so really just about being open to it and um, on a yearly basis or maybe every uh, quarter or every half a year, just thinking about whether what you're doing on a daily basis is what you want to continue doing. And if that helps you achieve the goals of making an impact uh, on society or on the environment. Amazing, amazing. And for many of us like who probably are maybe looking at what career to do next, where they can start off with, how did you actually go about like landing that first role at the ministry in Singapore? I mean, that's huge and ex extremely insane, especially like, like to think right, like right out of college. Was it like, like again, like, like did you have to search them out? Did they be like, this boy is a genius, we have to find him back. Like, like we let him go, we have to like bring him back right now to Singapore and make and get his expertise. How did you go about that for all of us who are trying to figure out what our next steps may be? <laughs> yeah, so I remember, I mean, the recruiting process, right? People looking for internships and full-time offers at, at Penn. So in my case, it was a bit unique. So I always <clears throat> didn't necessarily have to go through the same process, given that I, I knew I was going back to work for the government in Singapore. So it's actually um, something that a role that I already had. So it was more within the government uh, where I would want to work in and where would be a good fit uh, within the government. And that's how I ended up in the, the productivity team in the Ministry of Trade and Industry uh, back then. So I had a bit of a unique experience, but I've definitely seen the stresses and, and difficulties that come around in the, the recruiting process on campus. And again, on that, on that point, I think in hindsight, uh, I've seen friends who were disappointed, also very happy with the office that they got. I've seen friends who were very happy with the office that they got, entered a job and then switched jobs a few years later, right? So everything that you think you want at this current point in time, because of the environment that you're in, might not necessarily actually be the career or the job that you want in the future. So take a step back, uh, enjoy the process, um, as much as people create a stressful environment around recruiting there, I would say that it's going to be your first job out of university. So it isn't necessarily the job that you will be with five years down the road or 10 years down the road. So when you take that sort of step back, you will be able to alleviate the stress a bit on the decision making because ultimately people change jobs, right? People change industries, uh, people change uh, even within the firm to a different role. So there's a lot more flexibility there than people uh, believe when they are 21. Oh, all right. That's that's a very good point. I feel like we have a very doomsday mindset. Like sometimes <laughs> we were just over dramatic as a college student. You're like, the world's going to end if I don't get my dream job now. So, okay. That, that's it's, very refreshing. No, yeah, it's natural, right? It's natural for, for anyone and everyone. Um, but just trying to be able to put that in perspective, I think is helpful to yourself. Okay. What... Again, for, for many people maybe right now looking or, or like from your experiences at the very least, what do you think are like are the biggest challenges that you faced in kind of navigating this? Was it like a work-related challenge? Was it a family-related challenge? What, what was been your biggest hurdle? In a sense? Mm -hmm. So I suppose geography has been one, just also understanding Right. And, and you know that firsthand, right? So a lot of my friends and, and ended up working in the US or in Europe, uh, but myself, I had to return to Singapore, which is very, which is far away, right? So that creates challenges on a personal note, just keeping in touch with, with friends. Um, so I think that was initially one of the challenges that I struggled with. Um, but I've been fortunate enough to transition to different roles over time where it's allowed me to travel and be in Europe, like you pointed out, and also now in New York. So the world is a very much global place. I think COVID has shown us that um, uh, unfortunately, sometimes it will, travel will be restricted. So it's a good reminder for us to appreciate where we are and, and being with family and having some quiet time there. But otherwise, and we're hoping to return to normality or some sense of normal normality soon. Otherwise, the world is very much a global place, right? So geography can be solved. Um, thanks to modern technologies, flights aren't that difficult, and we're hoping they get quicker. Um, 
And I'm a big believer in even more technology coming through. Right now we're using Zoom, but who knows what's coming next. Very, very cool. Okay, as we wind down our conversation and as we draw slowly towards the end, I've got to ask you this in a way. Um, when you first started at Penn as a student and all of that, um, I don't think anyone would know exactly where their life would turn out and, and exactly what they were going to do after that. But um, as I said, you seem to hit the hail, like the nail like right in the right place for getting everything in line. So what do you think were the things that have like that made you different as a student itself, that you did differently in the very initial stages that kind of helped you in the rest of your life or specific things that you had that set you apart and enabled you to do all of this? Yeah, I think at Penn, it was really taking ex different classes, right? Trying to find um, what I wanted or what I was genuinely interested in. So having gone through the Singaporean education system, it is very much uh, a technical focus one. You are, you will be very good at math. I mean, you'll be good, of course, at the sciences that you do decide to take up. And I think it's the same in Malaysia. So you know it very well. So coming to Penn and really enjoying the fruits of a liberal arts education. I think that's key. Uh, that's what allowed me to uh, understand or dive deeper into different uh, spheres that I otherwise would not have had the chance to, for example, political science. And for me, political science always has a, a great intersection with economics, right? understanding political economy and the various political systems and how they feed into uh, policy making. So being able to then meld all those different perspectives and then um, creating that sort of um, framework for yourself to make decisions moving forward, both in your career uh, and in my case, as an investor or, or as, uh, uh, as an individual and in making certain life choices. So having all of that perspectives, being willing to uh, navigate through and, and interact with various uh, cultural groups in, at Penn um, and also just being completely open to all opportunities and people from all walks of life, I think collecting those perspectives makes us just uh, even richer uh, and and a better global citizen. Okay, very, very well said. And finally, touching on the note of being a global citizen, uh, I think there's a huge array of world problems out there for us to solve. Um, I'm personally a big believer that maybe if we all work together on the things that we are passionate about, we may be able to solve some of them. And, and, I, and I'm really, really passionate about helping people find ways that they can contribute to solving world problems in their own capacities. And you, again, like us, like in the specific, like the increasing food supply arena are an expert in it. When it comes to like, do you feel like this is some, like this is an area that more people should start looking at? And what is one thing you wish more people knew about this issue that you're working towards solving and and how can they get more involved? No, 100%. I think for us, food is uh, something that we consume every day. It's so real to every single individual on the planet um, and that people do not know the true situation um, of food, right? Apart from the prices that they see in the supermarket. So definitely a sector that I think people should get more involved in, either uh, at, the, at the investing level. So of course, I mean, with us at Rage Capital, uh, I mean, we we hire uh, people. We're happy to have interns from, I mean, interns from Penn and Wharton. I mean, we continue to uh, to want to bring people into the sphere, qualify people into the sphere um, to enable, I mean, greater investment to take place in the ecosystem. But apart from that, also many of these companies that are starting up uh, looking to solve um, some of these pain points across different food categories, definitely an option to look into too. Um, and I think... It's something that people uh, really should take um, greater uh, or make more conscious, conscious decisions about at an individual level too, as a, when you dine out or when you're cooking for yourself, understanding what goes into your food, the nutrition that you need, um, whether it's sustainable or good for the environment. And also maybe, yeah, just looking a bit beyond the label. I think that's, uh, that's one thing that we're always encouraging everyone around us to, uh, to understand because when you peel back the label, you understand the whole host of problems that go behind. And that's something that industry has been very, um, very good at hiding. Okay. I know I said last question, but I have a follow-up question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, please. No, no, no. But like, 
there is like a very like as you said, food is essential. Like I eat it three, I eat three times a day. I don't know about anyone else. Like <laughs> I, I, I assume most people do as well. So it is something that I feel we, we take at a very surface level for something that is so so like basic to who we are as human beings. And there's a whole very tough industry that is around it right now. Um, some good, some not so good, and in need of improvement. And I think with every major issue, the reason why we haven't gone guns blazing as a world and solved all of these huge issues is because there are already industries and systems in place, and that can kind of, at times, be a bit of a, a downer when we want to do something a little bit different, something alternative to what's the current options, what the current system is. Your whole like rich capital in general is kind of like disrupting that industry. It's it's kind of like introducing new solutions and all. <laughs> For all of those people who are probably at this at this point where they want to solve something, but they see so much resistance and existing thing in place, and it looks very hard to penetrate into an industry, what's your advice to them? Like, I'm sure there's people like Rage Capital doing amazing things all around the world. How can they like? How can we understand this in the context of the problems that we want to solve, and how do we wrap our mind around what we can do about? It? I would say you need to be continue to be optimistic. If there truly is a problem. Um, there will be a solution that will be created. I'm a big believer in human invention. I mean, people um, work very hard and and ultimately, um, when collectively the world puts their mind to it, I mean, we, we do discover these solutions for, for uh, some of the most, what we think is the most intractable problems. And on the food side, uh, we thought the same. I think um, about three years ago when we first started, we thought many of these technologies would face pushback from the largest food companies, right? Ultimately, incumbents do not like disruptive technologies. But what we've seen ever since has been these headwinds turning into almost tailwinds where these companies themselves, the incumbents, are starting to see the value of these technologies and they're starting to invest themselves in these technologies, be it through minority investments, through their corporate venture capital arms, or be it through partnerships uh, on the research side or, or manufacturing side, and also through acquisitions. So I think in a similar fashion, across any sphere that you look at, uh, do not ent be entirely deterred by the incumbents in place today. If there truly is a problem, uh, we need to work hard towards solving it. And, and young people, uh, like all of us, I mean, ultimately, we need to be optimistic um, in order to put our heads together and come up with the best solution. Okay. Thank you very much. You've inspired me a little bit. Um, and I and like, Truly, I, I will keep going right now in, in kind of like looking at solving world problems. And I think definitely inspired our audience as well uh, to start looking at what we can do. And I, I really like that part where you said when when if there is a problem as a world, as a planet, if we all can collaborate and find that solution. I think that's very, very, um, very, very nice to think about. I mean, I just watched the movie Don't Look Up, so I'm a bit deterred on all human. Like, <laughs> I'm a bit worried now for the planet, but you've given me some hope that there is still a like, possibility for a much better world. So thank you so much. And thank you for doing this interview. You've been absolutely phenomenal to talk about it. You've given me a lot to digest, food pun intended, from our conversation. <laughs> and I just hope you had as much fun speaking to us as we did you. No, I did. Thanks, Sasha, for having me on. I think it's always great to connect with students back at Penn. And I wish you guys all the best. And then you, Hasha, I hope you make it back to, uh, well, I hope you make it to campus very soon. Thank you very much. And with that, this has been another episode of Changing Reality. Thank you to our brilliant audience who watched uh, today's episode. If you liked today's episode, make sure you give us a like and a subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're watching on the radio show, make sure you tell your friends that we have amazing people like Brendan Chong who will blow your mind about, the, about how you can solve world problems and have a brilliant career while you're at it. We're on every Thursday at 10 p.m. ET and wherever that is around the world for you guys watching in from across the globe. So thank you guys once again for tuning in. And this is Harsha signing off. Till next Thursday. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality. Where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHD 89.9.